back to the TriCast show. Today with us, we have Freya Donti. She's a PhD candidate in computer science and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. She's also co-founded and is the chair of Climate Change AI, which is an initiative to catalyze impactful work in climate change and machine learning. Her work focuses on machine learning for forecasting, optimization, and control in high renewable power grids. Specifically, her research explores methods to incorporate the physics and hard constraints associated with electric power systems into deep learning models. Priya is also a member of the MIT Technology Review's 2021 list of 35 innovators under 35 and is a recipient of the Seibel Scholarship, the U.S. Department of Energy Computational Science Graduate Fellowship, and Best Paper Awards at ICML, ACME Energy, PECI, the Duke Energy Data Analytics Symposium, and the New Europe's Workshop on AI for Social Good. So welcome, Priya, to ChaiCast. We're very excited to have you here. And you have a very impressive bio there. So thank you for joining us today. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. So to start off, can you um, tell us a bit about your cultural and family background? Um, so that could be whether you're an immigrant, um, maybe what parts of South Asia you've come from, if you have any siblings, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, so my parents immigrated uh, to the U.S. from South India uh, before I was born. Um, they come from their backgrounds range from my mom grew up in Bangalore, but her her parents from are from Tamil Nadu um, and Karnataka. And my dad grew up in Andhra Pradesh. So kind of just like all over South India. Um, and um, my brother and I were were born here and grew up primarily in um, the Boston area in the US. Nice. I Boston is one of my favorite cities. So is your um, brother an older or younger sibling? A younger brother. He's two years younger. Nice. I'm curious, actually. So you mentioned you grew up in Boston, it sounds like. And this sort of leads to my next question. How did you get interested in computer science and specifically AI, machine learning and robotics? Because I know Boston is like very well known for robotics these days. Too. Yeah. So interestingly, my computer science journey started largely after I left the Boston area. Um, so how I got into this area that I work on, this intersection of computer science and climate change, is that in my high school, my uh, ninth grade biology teacher made sure to sort of set aside the first week or two of our intro biology class for a climate and sustainability curriculum that was actually led by students. And so over the course of two weeks, we learned about a variety of different topics, including, of course, climate change. And I think basically what what struck me about that class is that we talked about how climate change would exacerbate many of the inequities that we already see across the globe. And as somebody who had already had a bit of a predisposition to wanting to sort of combat some of these inequities because of some of my prior experiences as a child of immigrants, I really felt like this was something that I wanted to work on that spoke to me as we already have these really terrible inequities that exist in society and this thing's going to make them worse. So how can we stop this from happening? And it was only after that, when I was trying to figure out how to you know, work on climate change, I thought I would be, you know, uh, maybe a chemical engineer and, uh, or a materials engineer and discover, you know, next generation solar panels in order to, to decarbonize the power grid. I actually ended up going to Harvey Mudd College in Southern California, where all of the students end up taking over their first uh, year and a half a core curriculum where you take intro classes in many different STEM subjects. And one of these subjects was computer science. 
And I loved my computer science class there. But interestingly, at the time, it wasn't at all clear to me how computer science and climate change actually intersected. So in some sense, I pursued a computer science major while pursuing sort of a an emphasis or a minor sort of in environmental analysis and eventually decided I would try to figure out a way to bring these together. But in some sense, my computer science journey actually started a bit later than my climate change journey. That is really cool. And I was telling Rupal this earlier that I'm very impressed by all the work you've done, especially because it's very clear that you've spent time trying to figure out what is important to you. And I mean, a lot of computer science engineers, they will go into computer science because they can work on any problem that they want. But for you, it seems like climate change is like really central to you. Going back to what you were mentioning earlier about inequities, how do you think climate change affects the existing inequities in the South Asian community specifically? And as a child of an immigrant, what does climate change mean to you? Yeah, so... Basically, I think there are two big reasons that climate change is, is disproportionately worse for kind of existing disadvantaged communities um, and communities without a lot of money or wealth. Um, and the two reasons for that is, one, you actually see um, a lot of primarily, for example, agricultural regions that are extremely dependent on weather and you know just how agricultural yields are going to look. And as we start to see extreme weather kind of increasing, so except, for example, extreme droughts and things like that increasing in certain regions, that affects the disproportionately the economic livelihood of nations that depend on agriculture as, as a primary economic activity, and that often tends to be developing countries. In addition, you have a lot of you know island and equatorial nations that are particularly susceptible to sea level rise. So you have all of those kinds of factors where just the geography and the economic activities coincide with just really the, the effects of climate change just be having really bad impacts for those. And then in addition, communities that have less wealth already also have this issue that they are less able to build some of the infrastructure and structures that are needed to be resilient to some of these impacts of climate change. So if you're already a really well-off nation, you're able to sort of deal with this infrastructure problem and ad fundamentally adapt to certain kinds of things happening. And if you don't have the wealth to actually deal with that, then, then you can't. And so it's not just that the impacts are worse, it's that it's harder to actually cope with the impacts that, that one does face. Um, and of course, you know, India and, and South Asia kind of being or containing several developing nations that are, you know, there where there's a lot of also disparity in terms of how much wealth any individual or community has. You can imagine that there's a huge concentration of people in these locations who experience all of these effects that I just said, who are really going to be hard hit by these impacts of climate change. Have you uh, had the chance at all to work like internationally with people across the globe on problems like this? Uh, what has your experience been, especially since you're, you've studied in the United States, have you been able to work with people across the globe on climate change issues? Yeah, I definitely have uh, kind of been able to work with people across the globe, though I will admit that a lot of my kind of research and work today is, is focused on um, the decarbonization of power grids in developed countries. Um, so there's sort of two aspects to this. So uh, after my undergrad at Harvey Mudd, I actually did something called a Watson Fellowship, which funded me to travel around the world for a year and explore a project of my own choice. And the project I chose to explore was trying to um, understand this concept of what is called a smart grid or sort of an intelligent electric power grid. 
and understand in different countries, what do different people mean when they actually say smart grid? What problem are they trying to solve? And how do those sort of policy and social aspects actually shape the development of the technologies as we know them? And during that time, I actually spent time in a mixture of different countries. I I spent a few months each in Germany, India, South Korea, Japan, and Chile. And so through that, really got to see different countries who viewed smart electric power grids as serving different kinds of goals, be it economic development or, you know, helping to um, provide access to energy to a broader swath of the population, to trying to provide more resilience to climate change effects, to trying to actually decarbonize electric power grids to deal with climate change and reduce the extent to which it happens. And so um, so while I've done a lot of that exploratory work in, in a broader set of countries, and it definitely informs my perspective, what I've ended up spending the last few years of my PhD on is really decarbonizing power grids in, in the developing world. And so the work that I do is basically how can we help developed nations actually decarbonize in a way that hopefully, you know, has implications for, you know, allowing these, helping these climate change impacts not actually occur. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you mentioned that you admittedly, admittedly have only worked on uh, climate change for developed countries, but still you've had so many different experiences, international experiences, especially through that fellowship. I guess more going back to identity and just your upbringing in general, how do you think, or I guess, what are some of the challenges that you've had to overcome over the years to get where you currently are in your professional life? And it doesn't have to be about identity either, just in general. Yeah, so I guess I do want to talk about identity here for sure. So um, as many, right, like immigrants and children of immigrants face, I certainly have faced and continue to face my share of, you know, microaggressions or distrust where, you know, you're always viewed as foreign no matter what country you're in and all of those kinds of things. But what I actually want to talk about is how I think that my identity as an immigrant and in particular the specific or a child of an immigrant in particular the specific type of child of an immigrant I am has actually been a bit of a superpower that I think many of us actually share and hopefully can leverage to actually you know make some good change in the world and specifically so the kind of child of an immigrant I am like many uh, many but not all but many of my my South Asian counterparts are children of people who immigrated to the U.S. to basically take on, you know, tech or engineering jobs. And a lot of us in this class, I think we fall into this trap of saying something like, my parents came here with a couple of dollars in their pocket and really built something great. But I think what that neglects is that they came with a couple of dollars in their pocket and the huge investment that is the kind of education that allowed them to land the kind of tech or engineering job that really gave them a lot of upward mobility in in the US. So I think that when thinking about like the immigrant struggle, it's often important to think about, right, like what is also the the, the certain kind of privilege we had among other kinds of immigrants, where many South Asians and many people from other places do not necessarily actually face that kind of privilege, and use our relative privilege in society to actually uplift and and provide opportunities also for these groups that, that don't necessarily have that. So there's that aspect. And the reason I would say that also being this type of immigrant is a superpower is because you you do have a lot of the privilege that allows you to engage in society in a relatively cushioned way. But at the same time, you grow up with this sort of dual perspective. You see kind of the, you know, 
canonical quote unquote American society unfolding around you. And you also see a lot of kind of Indian values and Indian traditions playing out in your own life. You almost see two versions of a lot of different things playing out. And I feel like at least for me, that gave me a bit of a perspective where from early on, I there were fewer things I took for granted. I always would look at some uh, some cultural element and go, why does this culture do it this way? Why does that culture do it that way? And I think that just instilled some kind of inherent like curiosity or just deeper questioning of the world around me that I think really is an asset as we grow up and apply that kind of questioning to a broader set of topics. And so this combination of being able to see things from multiple perspectives, plus the kinds of privileges that, again, like I as a specific kind of child of immigrant faced, I think that really allows us to make a lot of change in the world and hopefully have the kind of empathy that allows us to uplift other people who, who maybe didn't have the same privileges. I really resonated with what you said about not taking certain things for granted because we, I, I'm also a child of an immigrant, Rupal is as well, and we grow up with these two, you know, this dual life, I guess, dual identity. And we're constantly questioning everything. And that's, that's what we've been conditioned to do because we grow up in this tradition, traditional South Asian household, but then we're going through an American education system and other, other systemic things going on too. Um, So that, that really resonated with me. Yeah, I like that you phrased it as like having a superpower, like a very nice positive spin on it. I remember growing up, one of my high school teachers, like we had done the six word memoirs or something like that. And hers was stuck in, I am stuck in translation. And that had also like uh, really resonated with me because you had mentioned like not really being a foreigner, no matter what country you're in. So growing up, going to visit family in India, I would, you know, get teased lightheartedly about my American quirks or growing up in American schooling here, I'd get teased about my South Asian quirks and my turmeric food and stuff. So feeling like you don't really belong anywhere, but I like your positive spin on that. And yeah, just the privileges that come out of that. That was uh, well phrased. Kind of going off of that. So we did name the podcast Chai Cast. Um, I think Chai is something that connects a lot of um, people in South Asia and even beyond that and even personally as someone who did not grow up liking chai I still like feel like I have a <laughs> important relationship with it so um, if you can talk about what your relationship with chai is and yeah yeah and I think like building off of this previous you know discussion about almost like there being two parallel tracks in in our lives I feel like I similarly have this with chai in some sense on the one hand chai is this like sugary like watered down iced beverage that you find in a Starbucks and that's sort of like the American side of my chai experience and on the other side it's like this really familial experience where I didn't necessarily grow up drinking chai frequently actually you know one of my parents doesn't drink tea and the other one is a coffee drinker so it really wasn't actually like a huge part of growing up but during the times when I have been right I'll be like at a family member's house often within an extended family gathering And they'll be like, who wants chai? And you'll see this like little pot go onto the stove and the water boils with all the little spices in it. And and it just, I feel like that particular association, I really do associate with just like good extended family bonding times in a way that I really appreciate. Yeah, totally agree with that. I've had a very similar experience. Um, My mom likes coffee, dad likes tea, so. (laughs) Yeah, I was about to say, so our previous guest is also South Indian and 
was saying that coffee is very big in in South India. So is it is it more of that kind of thing where one of your parents drinks a lot of coffee for that reason, or is it just coffee in general? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I've never stopped uh, like you know. You know, stepped back to think about that. But I know, yeah, my dad actually started drinking coffee at something like the age of four. He grew up in like a large extended family. Um, and I think they would just like hand things out and he would just take one. And I'm not sure people noticed or cared that he was taking coffee at that young an age. Uh, but yeah, I think it's definitely tied to that. And certainly like my dad definitely views also like coffee as like a bit of a communal experience, one that he sadly doesn't necessarily get to share with our nuclear family because none of the rest of us actually drink coffee. But again, like when extended family is over, I think he, you know, takes a lot of pleasure in kind of making coffee for other people and sort of drinking it as again, like an activity of, of community. And so I think similarly, like whether it is coffee or chai or whatever it is, I think there's like a, just a big association of, of community and sharing associated with these. So kind of shifting gears a little bit to talk uh, again about career. So I mentioned how much I, I appreciate that you've been so driven towards this one mission of combating climate change. And it's very clear that you are a very socially engaged engineer. And additionally, computer science education enables you to solve any problem, whether as a generalist or within a specific area. So out of all the things that you can do with computer science, why solve a social justice problem? And more specifically, why did you choose to apply your skills to climate change? Yeah. And so as I mentioned earlier, in some sense, my journey was a little bit inverted in the sense that I came across climate change as something I wanted to address first and then happened upon computer science. And as I mentioned earlier, right, I didn't immediately see a way to bring those two things together. But what did strike me about computer science is for sure that it basically is a, a field that really can cut across many other different fields and really have an impact on a lot of different spheres of our life. And I think I also really owe it to the specific kind of education I initially got in computer science that helped me appreciate that, which is um, at, at Harvey Mudd, there was actually a lot of effort to basically improve the diversity of the people who went into computer science by basically adapting the curriculum to emphasize the extent to which computer science really does cut across many different lines of inquiry. So we would do, you know, this, um, it, we would learn about an exercise on like string matching or something, but it would be situated in RNA matching in biology or something like that in a way that I think really just helped us like inherently appreciate this from computer science 101 onwards. So I think then what, what ended up happening for me is that given these two parallel interests, and again, like looking for a way to, to see if they really came together, late in undergrad, I actually found a paper written by some researchers at the University of Southampton, which was called Putting the Smarts in the Smart Grid. And that basically emphasized how AI and machine learning would actually be pretty critical ingredients of allowing us to incorporate renewable energy into electric power grids. The reason for this is that historically, the way we would manage electric power grids would involve firing up these coal or natural gas power plants that we could control how much power they produced at any given time, sort of shooting that power into the electric power grid. And then that power is consumed by end use consumers like us. And on the power grid, you have to maintain this basically like almost exact balance between supply and demand. So based on how much power consumption you thought there would be, you'd fire up exactly that amount of power production. But as we start to put more renewable energy into the power grid, things like solar and wind in particular that vary based on the weather, you don't necessarily have full controllability over your supply side anymore. 
in addition to you never fully were able to perfectly predict what your your consumption would look like. So in order to kind of manage this power grid dynamically in the face of now this sort of increased stochasticity or uncertainty coming from renewable energy sources, they basically argued that for that and several other reasons, AI and machine learning would actually be a pretty critical backbone to a lot of this uh, power grid management. And so that's sort of how I got into this this intersection of areas specifically. One thing I want to mention, though, just based on the sort of phrasing of the question, is that I think while computer science is cross-cutting and can help us like be, be a component of solving a lot of different problems, it's definitely not the only thing that allows you to solve that specific problem. And I will say that because computer science is so general, there does some, somehow tend to be this tendency sometime in computer science to come into a particular problem and say, well, I'm super smart. I have this cross-cutting tool and I'm going to solve this whole thing. Like the things that you were doing before don't make sense. And I think on the contrary, I think coming, ha- having this, this really, again, like generally applicable tool comes with a responsibility to to be basically appropriately humble and understand where exactly it plugs in, what exactly it can and can't do and what it can and can't solve, and where sort of other swarms of knowledge should be viewed on, on equal footing in order to kind of put these components together in order to address a societal problem. And so um, I think that has been like a really important aspect of my work as well, in the sense that my research actually focuses on bridging um, methodological tools from computer science with methodological tools that were already used in electric power grids from optimization and control and putting them together in a way that allows you to create something that's more than the sum of its parts. And I think that kind of thinking where you're really, again, viewing different schools of knowledge as being on equal footing and figuring out how to bridge them together in a way that enhances everything um, and the associated humility needed to do that kind of work is, is really important to come into problems with. I appreciate that you brought up this, uh, I guess, topic of like computer science is not just a tool to throw at uh, random problems, because I think previously on this podcast, we've talked about how, I guess, AI is more specifically the field, subfield of computer science that we tend to talk about is um, there can be sometimes a an instinct or a tendency in industry to just throw machine models, machine learning models at different problems, even when there might be a simpler, less computationally intensive solution that can work even better and with better guarantees. So really appreciate that you brought that point up. And now that you've had some, I guess, time to work on this problem, and obviously you're um, pretty far along in your PhD and have had time to work on AI and climate um, change, and you've worked on power grids and smart grids. So I was wondering if you could talk a little more about how machine learning models or AI um, solutions are used in that context. And if there are, I guess, other contexts apart from smart grids that you've been exposed to, how it's applicable. There. Yeah. So in electric power grids, the some of the big challenges that we're facing are um, Given that, as I talked about, we're trying to incorporate more, you know, variable or stochastic renewable energy into these power grids. One place that AI and machine learning are already actually very widely used is to try to forecast these things. So try to predict, you know, how much solar power we'll have on the grid in the near term or in the medium term in order to provide some additional information to power system operators as they try to maintain this balance between electricity supply and demand that I was referring to earlier. In addition, there's this whole um, area of optimization and control on electric power grids, which basically is trying to deal with the fact of 
how do we control the things that we can control on the power grid? So all of these, you know, coal or natural gas or nuclear plants that we can, to some extent, give them some instructions on how to turn on and off, given this, you know, uncertainty in demand and given this uncertainty in, in variable renewable energy. Um, and these fields are occupied by, or the, these problems are occupied by a bunch of different fields. So the control theory community, the operations research community, and newly people from the machine learning community are also starting to come in and, and contend with these problems. But a lot of the methods are still relatively early. And so what my work does is say, can we come up with faster and more dynamic ways to optimize and control the power grid in a way that plays well with the timescales that we need to manage it at in order to accommodate more renewable energy? And how do we do this in a way that doesn't break the underlying power grid? Machine learning methods are, you know, fundamentally, they, they learn from the data they're given, but that data doesn't always represent various physical or hard constraints or sort of thresholds that you can't cross. Um, whereas optimization and control methods traditionally are good at that. So my work basically says, how can we come up with more dynamic and faster methods that actually allow us to incorporate renewable energy while still keeping this understanding of the underlying physics and constraints that the grid has that come from optimization control? Now, power grids are only, of course, like one part of addressing climate change. So when it comes to global greenhouse gas emissions, the sort of supply and delivery of power is roughly a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions. And emissions are coming from a lot of other places. For example, how we actually use energy in buildings or transportation and heavy industry. And there are also kind of land use related emissions. So if we cut down trees or we kind of, you know, change the way that we're tilling soil such that it either retains or releases carbon dioxide or other things that were already stored there, various things like that. There are lots of emissions associated with like forestry and agriculture. And of course, we also need to adapt to the effects of climate change that are going to occur and bolster policy, social science, other uh, areas that actually enable the implementation of strategies to reduce climate change or adapt to its effects. And so machine learning actually can play a role across all of these by doing things like taking big raw sources of information like sat satellite imagery and distilling it into things like where are all the buildings or where is deforestation happening in order to provide insight to these things. It can help with forecasting, as I mentioned before. It can help optimize various kinds of systems. And it can also help accelerate the discovery of next generation technologies. So people are using machine learning to um, analyze the outcomes of previous experiments they were doing to try to design the next battery to figure out which kind of experiment they should try next in order to reduce the amount of time it takes to actually discover a battery. So you almost have this big matrix where there's a ton of different places that where, where, where you, you need to work on in order to um, for, contribute to climate action. And then the, the columns are almost like the different kinds of capabilities that machine learning can provide, whether it's like distilling information or forecasting or optimizing something. And you actually have basically like a lot of the, the cells in that matrix filled in, a lot of different places where these kinds of capabilities can potentially provide a service to a lot of different climate change related uh, strategies. Yeah, that's great to hear that there's so many different, I guess, subdomains of climate change where AI can help. And so are those problems that you talked about something that you'll work on with climate change AI? And I guess more generally, um, if you can tell us more about your work with the climate change AI organization, like what you're currently working on and what the overall goals are. 
Yeah, so Climate Change AI is an organization that I and, and, and many others sort of started during the course of my PhD. And what this organization tries to do is, is basically bring together people with different perspectives on, you know, who, who maybe work on machine learning, who work on a climate change related area, who come from an industry or policy or funding perspective to try to help them to kind of build teams to actually address various climate change related problems. And we do this in a couple of different ways, one of which is just education, trying to provide resources and materials to help people learn about this broader space. So, for example, a lot of the applications that I just talked about, they're actually detailed in a paper we wrote a few years ago called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning. Uh, the paper itself is a really long read, but there's also kind of interactive summaries of it available on the Climate Change AI website. But with those, with tutorials that we run, we're running an upcoming summer school, trying to provide basically education as to what does the intersection of AI and climate change mean? Both the good, how AI can help address climate change, but also the bad, how AI is being used to accelerate applications that are bad for climate change and also through it has its own you know, carbon footprint. So we try to kind of address all of that um, in order to basically align the use of AI with climate action as a whole. We also provide like uh, infrastructure, quote unquote, and funding programs. So we recently ran like a $2 million grants program to fund research across different universities with a kind of where we really encourage the researchers at these universities to have a very close partner that was in industry or an NGO or a government where they could see their research actually being used to address a climate change problem on the ground um, dur- uh, as, a, as a result of the project. And we also have right an online community platform, happy hours, various ways that we try to help people get connected. Because fundamentally, right, if you're thinking about this issue, if you're thinking about addressing climate change, in some ways, it's a very social endeavor where because you want to bring together people from very different areas, you need to meet those people. And so we try to provide those kind of open ended venues to do that as well. And then we also actually engage with the policy world where we try to educate policymakers as to, again, how do AI and climate change intersect and how as a policymaker do you form policies to both encourage the uses of AI that actually help accelerate various climate change related strategies, but how do you also deal with, again, these other effects where AI is potentially harming or impeding various aspects of climate action through through your policymaking? That's incredible um, work. And I think that's some very important work that the organization is doing when you're working in a field that seems very niche on one hand, like climate change and AI, but also super interdisciplinary, like you've talked about, like it touches so many different domains. So the aspects of education and distilling information seem very important there. Um, So what has it been like to be a co-founder of this organization while also being a PhD student? And I guess, what was the order of that? Like, did your PhD work inspire co-founding the organization or the other way around? And how do you balance the two? Because that's a lot of work. Yeah. So maybe to start with the story here. So I started my PhD after this Watson Fellowship of mine, where or again, like talking with people about power grids. I started my PhD at the intersection of these topics, basically figuring out how can you use AI to, I started with create better forecasts um, on the electric power grid. And so I was, I was doing this kind of work. I started to, as you know, a few years into my PhD, started presenting this work at, at various workshops. So I was at um, 
a workshop at, at NeurIPS, one of the, the big uh, machine learning conferences um, in 2018. And what happened is that in parallel, um, one of my climate change AI co-founders, David Rolnick, had you know been he he comes from a kind of mathematics and deep learning kind of background and he and many others had started to wonder how can we use our skills to address climate change so he organized a gathering kind of parallel to this NeurIPS conference and workshop um, and I actually got invited to that to give a talk on my own work so we met there and then basically David was was basically wanting to say let's write a paper or some kind of document such that as we do this personal exploration as to how machine learning can can help address climate change, other people can benefit from this exploration as well. And so he and I and many others kind of pulled in additional people to help write this paper, one of whom is um, Lynn Cock, who was at the time a PhD student in one of the programs I'm associated with called Engineering and Public Policy at, at Carnegie Mellon, and who had done some really strong and kind of you know foundational work on the climate policy side that was using satellite imagery to try to get counts of freight transportation, of freight trucks, in order to fill in gaps in data about you know what are the emissions of the transportation sector and what are the dynamics of the transportation sector in many different countries. So the, the three of us and many others from across different institutions basically came together to write this paper on, on tackling climate change with machine learning. And we launched it along in, in the middle of 2019 alongside a workshop we were holding at ICML, another machine learning conference. And based on the response we got to that, there were a lot of different people who were there who were very excited, but who were also wondering, you know, but what are my next steps? How do I actually get into this space? Um, that is what kind of, you know, created the inspiration for this organization. And we actually, you know, then, then started it from that. Running Climate Change AI while doing the PhD in parallel, it's not secretly chill or something like that. It, it was definitely a lot of work to be doing the PhD alongside the organization. And I think I really benefited from a very supportive network of, you know, advisors, mentors, and co-founders and collaborators within climate change AI. My advisors were extremely supportive of me basically putting a lot of time into something that was non-traditional from the perspective of a PhD student. I think it's very easy, right, to for, for many advisors to say, well, you should be protecting your time. You should be working on directly publishable research that well, will benefit you and, and allow you to have the kind of output that a PhD student should. And that advice often comes from a very good place. But in this particular case, my advisors did allow me to take the risks that, that come with maybe putting time into this other kind of thing. And that was really great because that meant I didn't feel like I was trying to hide certain aspects of my work from one group or another, but could really transparently iterate with both groups to understand how we could best make progress on both the PhD research and climate change AI in a way that sort of everybody was on board with. And I think the result of this is that through climate change AI, um, the goal is to, again, provide ways for people to make connections with other people in the community. But of course, I directly benefited from this, too, in the sense that then I also started interacting with more perspectives and more people who either worked in or wanted to work in this area. And I think that really benefited my own PhD research as well. So even though initially it felt a little bit like, oh, man, I'm spending a small, like some time on this thing and some time on this thing. And it feels like they're a little bit orthogonal, but I care about both of them. I think in a way they actually really ended up helping each other as well. So I guess kind of backtracking a little bit, 
why ultimately did you decide to pursue a PhD? And as a member of the South Asian community, what does it mean for someone like you to pursue a PhD? Yeah, so um, the reason I decided to pursue a PhD is because when I was an undergrad in computer science, I sort of took the advice that I also tend to give to a lot of people now, which is that you should use your internships or sort of extra like outside of school experiences to try out different kinds of things in order to understand what you personally are motivated by, both at a high level, but also in terms of the day to day. So I in I specifically tried out, um, you know, some internships at, at some tech companies. I, I did some research at, at Harvey Mudd. And I personally found that I liked the day to day of research much better and sort of the vision associated with it much better. I like coding, but basically when I was coding for a product that maybe I thought was cool, but wasn't aligned with my personal vision and motivations in the same way, that it felt like some kind of like local happiness rather than the global happiness where I was really working towards a goal that I really cared about. And I felt that research at the time really gave me a lot of freedom to both formulate the problems that I actually cared about and then actually work towards addressing them. And in order to do research, um, in a lot of different cases, a PhD is something that is that is really, you know, useful to have. Um, and so that's why I decided to go that route. I will say if I were um, myself, but like at that stage of life again, the ecosystem around has changed a lot. So I think research would still have been a really attractive option. But now, given this, this huge explosion and also climate tech startups that exist today, I think that there's much more that one can do if you're someone who is a computer scientist, maybe actually really enjoys software development and wants to do software development in a way that's aligned with some broader goal. The climate tech startup is, is, is really healthy and, and growing. And I think that this is another, another route that I would have really strongly considered pursuing if that's what the ecosystem had looked like when I was initially making this choice. And then in terms of kind of what this means to me as, as someone who is uh, South Asian, I think this answer for me is really closely tied to my grandmother, actually. So my mom's mom, my grandmother, um, growing up in, in India in sort of the, the, the 19, you know, 30s, 40s or so, it was a time when, you know, in, in many, I, I can't generalize to the entirety of India, it's a big place, but at least in, in her specific community, right, a lot of women, they were definitely, you know, getting married, you know, fairly early and the and so forth. But her dad was actually a really staunch believer in the fact that all of his children should be educated and be educated well, to the extent that actually... I think at the age of five, when all of the kids, I guess, like take their entrance exams or something like that, all of his kids placed and like really like did really well. So I think like I think a lot of I, I can't remember exactly, but all of the kids started somewhere between like third to sixth grade or something like that. They like placed well enough on the exam to start there. And their dad basically argued for them to actually start there. So my grandmother started somewhere I, I think might have been fourth grade, basically at the age of five. and you know, what she went ahead and got her master's for marriage related reasons. She never got her PhD. But I think when then I started going this route, she was very personally invested in, in making sure that I did my PhD and that I was, you know, 
like given that I had shown this inclination to want to do it, she was really, you know, excited that I finish and, and hoped that I basically wouldn't get distracted in ways that allowed me to not finish. So she was always, you know, whenever we would talk about dating life or something like that, her little worry would be like, I hope Priya's dating life doesn't stop her from finishing her PhD because I really want her to finish her PhD and not sort of not be able to do that because of like relationship related reasons in a way that was sort of why she couldn't do hers. So to me, that's it's not, of course, like the no what the entirety of you know how being South Asian, but but I think this like personal family story for me really was very meaningful in, in thinking through like why, in addition to pursuing my goals, why from a family perspective, I think it really is very meaningful to me that I am getting to do this PhD. Yeah, it's been pretty clear that you have a lot of passion and energy for climate change in AI. So to wrap up here, what is some advice you have for listeners and particularly South Asians that aspire to work in the field of AI or climate change or both? Yeah, I I guess I would say that I think, again, that being, you know, either a South Asian immigrant to the U.S. or the children of of South Asian immigrants, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think we in some ways really do have a superpower in terms of, in many cases, a lot of education. And hopefully, right, a lot of empathy for basically the different kinds of experiences and resources that different groups of people come in with. And I think that those things together, we can really make a lot of difference. I think sort of, yeah, pursuing large scale change and, and trying to make the world a better place, but in a way that is kind of, you know, not just in a light way cognizant of, of how different people's perspectives play into that, but really focuses in on really bringing those perspectives together and creating collective change in a way that is really inclusive of a broad swath of people is really important. So whether your passion is AI or climate change or something else or, or the intersection of the two, whatever it is, I think that using our education to create great change and and bringing a lot of empathy into the situation to do that in a way that benefits a broad swath of people, not just the three people around us or, or people who are just like us, it is something that I'd say is a guiding principle that a lot of us should go forward with. Totally agree. Very well phrased advice there. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Are there any other comments or closing remarks? you would like No, to nothing say? in particular. Yeah, Rupal Anisha, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story with us and the work you do, and best of luck for your future endeavors. Me too. Thanks.